Welcome to By the People for the Podcast, produced by the American Civil Liberties Union of New Hampshire. I'm Jeannie Haruska, political director for the ACLU, and I'm here today to talk with Chad Marlowe, privacy guru from ACLU National. I have tons of questions about privacy, and Chad was patient enough to answer all of them. The good news, he gave great answers. The bad news, I came away even more paranoid than I was before. So warning, if you have electronic devices in your household, you may want to throw them out after listening to Chad. But don't worry, you're not alone. The paranoia is shared by all of us. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chad. Hi, Chad. It's great to have you on our podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. My name is Chad Marlowe, and I am a senior advocacy and policy counsel at the HCLU's national office in New York City. I focus on a lot of issues, but kind of the largest uh, bucket of issues I focus in on are surveillance, privacy, and technology. All the things that make me paranoid. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So I'm going to start really broad, which is I think the word privacy gets used a lot. And it's, it's helpful to come up with a common definition of what we're talking about. So for our listeners, can you help us understand what is meant by the word privacy when the ACLU talks about it? Sure. So I want to start by by giving the definition that we don't use, but that the Constitution uses. So the Constitution says privacy is the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And maybe that was common parlance in 1789. Can but- we insert the word Facebook in there? <laughs> oh, we'll get there. We'll wait till we flash forward to nowadays. But but yeah, I think that's exactly the point. You know, a, a lot of times when people first started talking about privacy, they're talking about, you know, necessarily what's contained in the four corners of their homes and that sort of thing. And I think really what what privacy is about in modern times, or at least the way that I like to think about it, and I think that the way that the ACLU thinks about it, uh, it's about information about yourself that you have, some of which you may not care about it all, whether you prefer to drink coffee or tea. Other information may be very personal or very private, and maybe private is the right word, but personal, sensitive, something you don't want to share. And so really what privacy is, is the ability of individuals to decide what information falls into the bucket of the, I don't care if people can see it and know about it, and have a bucket of information that says, you know what, I do care uh, what people see it. And within that second category, there may be information that is so private, you don't want anyone to know it other than yourselves. Or there may be information that you're like, well, I have certain close friends or family members I want to share it with. And I think that the, the final point I would make, and probably the most important point about privacy from the ACLU perspective, is that doesn't mean one thing to all people. Those are not the same buckets for all people. Where I might draw my privacy line and where I would hope you know, the government of the United States and the government of New Hampshire would protect my privacy would fall in a completely different place than say someone like Kim Kardashian West, right? Who has largely made a career out of putting herself into the public sphere for almost everything to be looked at. But even Kim Kardashian West, there was a story maybe about, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, 
where she went to the hospital, um, someone stole, copied, and released her medical records publicly, and she was extraordinarily upset because to her, that was privacy, and that was a violation of her privacy. And so different people are going to set their lines in different places, and what privacy really is about is it's about empowering people to be in control of being able to draw that line for themselves and determine what information about themselves they want to protect from either all others or, or most of other people, be it government, you know, private companies, or just random individuals. That is great and really helpful. And I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is the definition of privacy stems from a document that was written before Facebook, before Google, before Amazon, when privacy was really about government and protecting people from governmental intrusion. More and more, when, when I talk to people about privacy, their concern is less about what does the government know and more about what's the information that all of these giant companies have on me. So within that definition that you just talked about, can you help us talk about the kind of the evolution of privacy? Is the definition changing or does what gets thrown into the privacy bucket, is that expanding now that it's not about Big Brother watching you, it's about Facebook watching you, it's about your Alexa listening in on you. How does that change the conversation about privacy? Right. So that's that's a great question. And I think it really, it has to do with not necessarily what the information is, but what the perceived threat is. So back, you know, at the time of the revolution and the writing of the Constitution, largely, at least to the drafters of that document, the big threat to privacy, the big threat to learning information people don't want to share, which back at the time could have been as simple as I am not loyal to the, to the king of England. The source of the threat was the government, right? It was actually the crown uh, in Great Britain. And there are big privacy decisions that have stemmed from that, right? When we think about abortion or gay marriage, those are both decided based on the notion of like, what does government have a business in? And I think the answer is government doesn't have any business being involved in really personal decisions. Is that fair? That's right. That's right. And because for those communities, women who are seeking reproductive health services or members of the LGBT community, the the threat there is still from the government. And, and I do want to say that I think that as we have emerged away and as we have kind of emerged and developed into kind of a stable democracy where the, where the government has confidence of large numbers of people, the government has seemed to be less and less of a threat. But I do want to put a pin in the fact that there are many populations in this country for whom the threat of the government remains extremely heightened. Mm -hmm. Certainly the first that comes to mind in 2019 is undocumented persons, which are certainly protected by the U.S. Constitution being in this country. They are under threat from the government. And so for them, the, the privacy rubric of the government still matters. For Muslims and Southeast Asians in this country, we're approaching, what, 19 years uh, after 9-11, but still, you know, in, in this world of the of the never-ending war on terror, they are largely watched. I think for, honestly, for many persons of color uh, or people who live in poor communities, understand that the police are watching them a lot more than they're watching other people. And so, so that still exists. But I think that what has been added onto it, and perhaps the reason why privacy is a growing concern is that while 
to some communities, the threat presented by government has decreased. Here has risen up this threat, which in some ways feels more real because it's happening every single day and every single moment to you of corporations who are collecting your data, often without your knowledge, often beyond the purposes for which you have any sort of relationship with them, sharing it with other third parties that can go on to other third parties and kind of, you know, lead to kind of indefinite spreading of your personal information. And also by collecting it, becoming almost a repository of, and here we go back to the original concern, a repository of personal information for you that the government can then gain access to. And so I think that really, that's why we're talking more about big tech and that's how the privacy landscape is really shifting, is I think that the threat to privacy is deemed to be larger than it ever has been because I think it is. Because in addition to this kind of historical, as it has been for thousands of years, threat that governments can present to the privacy of others based on who they are, what they're thinking, we now have the rise of tech companies and kind of a digital economy where the ability to sweep up mass amounts of personal information about individuals without their knowledge is almost a fact of modern life. And I've seen so many different angles at this of the threat of tech. And it, and part of that goes to the government threat, right? Because governments have access to all of this technology. They have access to Facebook. They have, they have access to surveillance we've never seen before. But there's two pieces to this that I want to dissect. When I talk about privacy to some folks, one of the questions is like, I don't care if Facebook uses my data, but if they're going to profit off of it, I want to profit off of it too. And so it's that it's the notion of what's the value of your private information. So there's that, and then there's the other issue of if the comp if these companies are going to collect all of this private information about you, what what are they allowed to share with the government under what circumstances, right? You might be willing to give information to Ancestry.com, for instance, that you're not necessarily wanting to hand over to law enforcement. Um, so I know those are two very um, different angles. So let's start with the profit one, which is, you know, it's fine. You know, Facebook knows all this stuff about me. That's fine. But if they're going to sell it to a third party, like, I want in on the profit, how does that work? So first of all, you know, you can go out and sell information about yourself right now. For example, right? Um, I would never choose to commercially sell a picture of myself in a bathing suit. But there are quite a few people who make a very good living out of doing just that. So, and I can sell, if I want to sell my medical information, if I want to sell my social security number, I highly advise people not to do that. But if I want to, I can go ahead and do that. So I think that the problem is, is that people look at the industry for data worldwide, and they're looking at like a $200 billion industry. I think it's going to get to that figure in a year or two. Again, as you say, they come to this conclusion, well, if they're making all this money off of my data, I want to as well. And I think there's two things to unpack in there. The first thing is, are you comfortable with that information being sold at all? And second of all, if it's being sold, should you get some money off of it? So, and those two things are interlinked in this way. What, what people don't realize and what people who are advocating for what they call this data as property model don't really reveal is that the value of your individual data is extremely small. It is when this data is collected from hundreds of thousands or millions of people as Facebook does 
And it's packaged in a way that tells stories about groups of people within the population. It is then that it, that it attaches larger and larger value to it. Are you telling me that I can't quit my job and, and go make a living just selling my personal data to Facebook? Because that had been my plan. Well, you you might because of the enormous value of your personal data up there with like George Clooney or, or Kim Kardashian. <laughs> but no, no, the, no, the, nice. the, uh, no, the average person, the average person, no, there's there's not much money to be made. The sense then, am I right, Chad, of like, if I went to Facebook and was like, you know what, I don't want to give you my data. Facebook, in that sense, would probably shrug its shoulders and be like, yeah, no problem, because there's a billion other people whose data we're collecting. So is that kind of like one person's data is just like any other one person's data to Facebook, because all they want is kind of the aggregate. Right. They're, they're not going to offer you five bucks for your data. But then that then comes around to the second point, right? Some company were to come to me realistically and they were to say, Chad, I will give you $100,000 for a picture of you in a bathing suit for we can use it in a commercial. Honestly, I'd probably go ahead and do it. But if they offered me a penny, I'd say no. And I think that that's the thing with this concept of selling your data. These people are going to offer you almost nothing to sell information like your genetic information, what your, what your preferences are, who your friends are, what your book interests are for almost nothing. And you would give up that information. And in point of fact, because you don't know what the value of data is until you try to sell it, the conversation would be not, can I give you one tenth of one cent for selling your data? But they would say, how about I pay you for the sale of your data? And so people say, oh, sure, that sounds great. I can make them extra, extra money. And then they find out they're not making anything. It's like, you know, I would say that you know, any, any people who are listening here, if I went up to you and I said to you, hey, I'd like to buy your car. Will you sell it to me? You would never say yes. You would say, for how much? Because that would be critically important to whether you'd sell your car. But that's not the way the conversation works with your private data if you sell it. It's, would you allow me to sell your personal data? And you have to say yes or no and find out later whether you get any money for it. That's the problem with that. What we really actually need, we need laws that prevent a company like Facebook from being able to suck up your data and sell it to third parties unless you explicitly say they can. And that's the way you protect your privacy. And then if you want to go off separately and put an ad on, on Craigslist and say, anyone want to buy my personal health information? You know, by all means, you know, be my guest. Don't, I don't think you're going to get rich off it. But, but that's the way we strike this balance in terms of, you know, we want to protect people's privacy through strong privacy laws. And if people want to go ahead and sell their data, you can. But I think most people will be disappointed at what the value of, of individual data actually is. So here's my concern. I can easily say Facebook saying, no problem, we're happy to secure everyone's consent. And it'll be line 20 on page 55 of that privacy statement that everybody has to say, I read once a year that actually nobody's read because it's a gazillion pages long and in tiny print and in legalese. So how do you make a law where it's like, no, actually, you have to explicitly get somebody's consent to do this and not just have them click on a button that claims they read something? You pretty much kind of self-answered the question, right? It's the law has to be very explicit because right now there is sort of a concept, you know, as long as you provide the information and get consent, that's good enough. And, and then you're right. They're bearing it on page 62 of, of user agreements that no one reads. And in fact, I saw a study that suggested that if people 
people actually read all of the user agreements that they encounter over the course of their life, it would take them like 75 years to do it. It's it's literally not even possible. So in the third party conversation here in New Hampshire, the issue came up about DNA databases, right? You, sub- you send your data to 23andMe or to Ancestry.com and you get back all this great genetic information, Yahoo. But then the, the company retains a copy of your DNA. And we've seen this play out in a couple high profile cases across the country where law enforcement submits a DNA sample to those big DNA databases to kind of try and figure out a crime. And I've had conversations with people where it's like, if my DNA can help law enforcement solve a crime, like, no problem. I'm happy to have that happen. But I've also, and I personally am of the mind of, I don't want the government nosing around my information without me knowing it. Like, that just makes me uncomfortable. So, but how do you strike this difference where, like, obviously there have been crimes that have been solved through these giant DNA databases where everybody whose DNA was being analyzed was not notified that law enforcement was doing this. Right. So so let, let me make three points on that. First of all, no one should use those services right now. I don't care how much you want to find out about your family history. I would love, love to find out about my family history, but I won't use 23andMe or I won't use Ancestry.com's services because they're, they're, they eviscerate your privacy for just those reasons. They will collect your genetic material, analyze it, and they will store that information for as long as they want and share it with whoever they want. So I want to talk to you about the, this, this criminal context, but then also another context. So first of all, you say, well, I'm all in favor of, of sharing my data if it will help prevent crime or if it will help capture criminals. Well, if you share your data, the only criminal they're going to be capturing is you or your family members. So I don't think that there's that many. You're not going to catch some stranger by sharing your DNA. The only, the only people you're going to be exposing to the criminal justice process are yourself and your close relatives. So that's one thing to bear in mind. But the second thing to bear in mind is what scares me more about this context is not the government context, but the private context. So, for example, let's say I go to, uh, you know, State Farm is is my life insurance company, right? And I apply for, for life insurance with State Farm. Well, State Farm can go to Ancestry and 23andMe and say, hey, do you have any DNA on Chad Marlowe by any chance? And by the way, if you don't, do you have any DNA from any of his family members? Looking for genetic flaws to decide whether to sell you life insurance or health insurance. Or just, or just increase your rates. Oh, that's terrifying. And right. And now you've gone ahead because you wanted to find, you know, whether or not you have family members in Europe or Africa or Asia. And as a result, you're paying two or three times as much for health insurance and life insurance. And that's just going to get worse as they find more and more genetic markers to different diseases and conditions. They'll be able to go, oh, my gosh, you're vulnerable to these 100 different things. Can't sell life insurance to you. And, And if you think about it. Why wouldn't those two companies engage in that transaction, right? 23andMe or Ancestry.com is just sitting on this data and they have the ability to sell it and make more money. So why wouldn't they? The whole model in insurance is that you you collect more in premiums than you pay out. And, right. and this investment of money is going to make them more effective in operating that model. 
So, so there's very little incentive on either side of these companies to not engage in this transaction. And so the only way, again, to prevent that is, is to have rules, that, you know, in, in the case of like a, a, a DNA collecting company that says this DNA information, you can analyze it, but you can't share it with anyone else without permission. And once you're done with the purpose for which it was given to you, which apparently is providing the person with the report on where their, where their family history is from, you have to delete the material and delete the data you got it from. But, but, but we have yet to pass those laws. And I'm guessing there's a ton of money that's going to go into lobbying against laws like that from exactly the companies we're talking about. Each and every time the laws come up, it's a guarantee. Yeah. So I want to shift to two things that are very New Hampshire specific. The first is a constitutional amendment specifically on privacy. And New Hampshire, actually, my understanding is really a leader in this country when it comes to privacy. And so for our listeners, I want to read off what that constitutional amendment said. It was passed in 2018, and more than 80% of voters voted in support of adding this to our Constitution. And it reads, an individual's right to live free from governmental intrusion in private or personal information is natural, essential, and inherent. Is that a first of its kind in the country? Oh, it's actually not. It, it, it's a- actually New Hampshire is, I think, about the 11th state to add privacy. But the, fir- the other statement you made is right, which is New Hampshire has always been looked upon as a leading state in terms of the protection of liberty and privacy. And so I think a lot of people were very surprised when they looked at the list of states that did have a right to privacy in their constitution that New Hampshire wasn't on there. If anything, I think the assumption would have been that if any state had it, it would have been New Hampshire. So so I think that in a weird way, the state that's kind of in many respects led the nation in terms of its respect for liberty and privacy was actually behind the curve of many other states and not having a right to privacy in its constitution. But again, thanks to the voters, uh, that has been remedied. So the language that we added is a, is a very broad, broad statement. And there's a lots of questions going around in New Hampshire right now as to what it means. It has yet to be interpreted by the court system. So we're not entirely sure what it means. But let me ask you this, of those other states that have something like this, does their language read similar to this? Is it this broad? You know, in, in many cases it is. And in many cases, it can be even less specific in that they just literally note privacy is one of the things that are are protected. But I think that the value of, of something like this is still important, and here's why. Everyone in the country, regardless of where they live, are, are protected by the, the right to privacy in the U.S. Constitution, right? That applies to everyone, and certain nationwide privacy laws like HIPAA, which is a privacy law for health information, right? If you live in New Hampshire, you also have the benefit of specific laws that are passed to protect your privacy. Like, for example, and I I think one of the first states in the country that actually recognized a right to the privacy of your garbage when you put it out at the curb. So if you live in New Hampshire, you have the benefit of the case law and and the legislation that protects privacy. But what this does is it creates the possibility of a higher privacy ceiling that when new things emerge that are perhaps either unprecedented or they're so groundbreaking that neither the courts nor legislatures have caught up with them yet, this is an additional filter 
by which New Hampshire courts could say that this new technology applies to you. And I'll give you an example of, of a technology that you know was not there yet, but could get there eventually. So they have things called through wall sensors right now. Oh, you're getting into my extreme paranoia. I've heard of these and I'm 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 terrified. The good news is they're not that good yet. So all they can basically do is if you literally put one up against the wall of a house, they can detect heat signature through. So you could, for example, tell how many individual people are in a room on the other side of a wall, but you can't get much more than that. But that is not to say in 50 years, they might not have sensors that can literally see through a wall and see images. With something like this in place, someone could challenge the use of that technology certainly under the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, but also under the New Hampshire right to privacy. And and a New Hampshire court could find that the use of that technology, even in the absence of legislation banning it or limiting it, violates this clause of the Constitution. So you hit upon the issue that I want to raise next, which is an emerging technology for which there is a specific bill introduced for this next legislative session that starts January 2020 here in New Hampshire. And that's a bill that would ban the government's use of facial recognition technology. And again, my paranoia kicks in. Every time we talk about facial recognition, I don't want to leave my house. But I've talked to you about this before, and you have such a great way to explain what facial surveillance really is. So can you give me the example? How do you explain facial surveillance? There's there's two problems with facial surveillance. The first is kind of the broader privacy violating problem with it. And, and, and what we've talked about, you know, the use of facial recognition, if it becomes present enough in society, is almost the equivalent of asking, again, in the New Hampshire context, which this law would, would be looking to prevent, it would be like passing a law that says every person in New Hampshire, when they walk around in public, has to wear a shirt with a blown up picture of their driver's license on it, and also to wear a government tracking device. Uh, and in a way, that's actually less intrusive than facial recognition is because the information on the front of your driver's license is far more limited than what a facial recognition database would have access to. And so it would really almost eliminate the ability to move around anonymously in public. And again, to take it one step further so people really understand that, it's not just about being able to identify a person in public. And it's not even being able to identify where a person goes in public through different cameras tracking their face, but also who you associate with in public. So if if you and I, Jeannie, were to, were to meet in a public park in Concord, the facial recognition could say, Chad and Jeannie met each other here. And now they know that we have a a relationship that we are friends. Let's talk about a real live example. So imagine a whistleblower meets with a reporter from the New York Times. Exactly. Right? If the New York Times were to print something and the government wants to find out who leaked it to the press, they could potentially track the reporter's movements back and figure out whom that reporter met with. So I would say this, in and of itself, that's grounds for banning facial recognition. And in fact, we, we have bans or 
several cities, Oakland, California, San Francisco, California, and closer to your backyard, Somerville, Massachusetts, have already banned the use of the government use of facial recognition. Uh, there's, there's other movements elsewhere. California, the entire state banned its use on police body cameras. New York State is looking into banning it in schools. So the privacy reasons in and of themselves are strong enough, but there is another reason why facial recognition should be banned, and that is because it doesn't work. It doesn't work right now, right? I mean, I feel like it's naive to assume that it's never going to work. So, so I would say this. So right now, when facial recognition is used, it is far less accurate in determining the faces of persons of color, of women, of very young people, and of very old people. What it ends up doing is producing false positives. And so people who've done absolutely nothing wrong are going to be identified potentially as criminal suspects by the technology. So I want to end on one note, which is that we've been talking a lot about all the various threats to privacy, but we've also been talking about some of the ways that we can really protect privacy. And I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations, especially with younger people, where somebody in the conversation essentially throws their hands in the air and says, you know what, privacy doesn't exist anymore. You know, I'm on my smartphone, I'm on my laptop, there's facial surveillance, there's all these other things. Like, I just don't need, I, I, I can't worry about it because I assume it, I have zero privacy at any point in time. That scares me. Like, I really, really worry about that assumption because then we'll be giving even more information away willy-nilly. So please... Chad, please give me some hope. Tell me that privacy still exists and that we can continue to keep privacy laws alive. In some respects, the biggest risk to privacy doesn't come from the government and it doesn't come from corporations. It comes from either apathy or just negative thinking that it's a lost cause. That is your kind of your your ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy. If people decide there's nothing we can do, privacy is an antiquated notion that doesn't exist anymore, then that is what it will become. Uh, but I would say a couple of things. Some people kind of are, are apathetic about privacy because they say, and, and, and this is a lot with young people who, you know, in a world where it seems they've never had much in the way of privacy. And they say, well, you know what? I don't really have that much to protect anyway. And what I often say to high school students is I say, okay, you ever go to the beach or to a lake? Yeah. You ever with your friends and you're in your bathing suits and you take pictures? Yeah. Would you like your teacher to see those? No. Well, then you better care about privacy. And the point is, is not everything that, that you decide to capture and share with some people do you want to share with every people. But the, the larger is this, and it's both good and bad news. There are things that people can do to protect their privacy. The problem is, is that there's a huge burden that's placed on individuals to do it. Some decisions are simple. Don't send your genetic material to 23andMe. Some are more complicated. If you have a phone, go on your phone, go under settings and look at privacy settings and go through them and make sure things are turned off. Like don't use location tracking on me. Or I only want websites that do location tracking to be able to track me when I'm on the site. For example, a lot of these weather programs, weather apps you put on your phone, like Weatherbug or the Weather Channel, they will track you as long as the app is open or forever if you have it on your phone, unless you tell it not to. So you have to go in and do, do those sort of things. But the bigger point is, is that too much emphasis is put on people to have to take all these steps to protect their privacy. And so while people have to go out and do that, I think that, that people and governments are realizing more and more that 
it is just asking people too much to have to read every user agreement, to have to go into every program, check every box, be knowledgeable about the ways their data is used and collected and shared, and it's a bit overwhelming. And I think from all of that, we realize that we do have to pass stronger privacy laws that make it easier for people to protect their privacy and more difficult for governments and corporations to sweep up people's personal information without their knowledge and consent. For, for all of the horror the risk to privacy present, if there is one silver lining and every gray cloud has one, it's that even in our fractured society that we live in now, privacy is a genuinely nonpartisan issue. No party has a claim to it, no political philosophy has a claim to it. It's something that really people are kind of really genuinely worried about across the political spectrum. And I think what that does is that really creates opportunities uh, for people to work together in a very positive fashion to craft laws that enhance privacy for Americans, both vis-a-vis -vis the government and vis-a-vis -vis, you know, private collectors. Thank you, Chad. We are going to continue to fight for privacy here in New Hampshire, including banning facial recognition technology. So we look forward to keeping you posted on that front. Thank you so much for giving us your time and expertise on this. And we look forward to working with you down the Me road. Me as well. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, pay attention. Nothing that you heard on this podcast constitutes legal advice. I'm required to say that by our attorneys. But the paranoia is real. So if you want to take action and protect privacy in the Granite State, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or check out our website at www.aclu-nh.org, where you can also sign up to volunteer with us and help us defend privacy at the New Hampshire State House this upcoming legislative session.